1: This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. On the morning of January 21st, 1985, Mrs. Nancy Eaton woke to a strange feeling and a snowstorm. The city of Toronto had been hit with a nasty blizzard and the roads were a mess. Mrs. Eaton called her daughter to see if she planned to go into work. Better to stay home, thought the overly cautious mother. Mrs. Eaton was very close to her only daughter, who was also named Nancy. The two Nancys would talk to each other throughout the day, and their morning phone conversations had become a ritual. So when Nancy failed to answer the phone or call back, her mother became a little worried. It just wasn't like Tiger, as Nancy was affectionately nicknamed. Then her phone rang. Must be Nancy, she thought. Good morning, it's a beautiful day, said the male voice on the other line. It wasn't Tiger. Who is this, asked Mrs. Eaton, not recognizing the voice. It's a beautiful day today, the voice repeated, before hanging up. How strange, thought Mrs. Eaton, before calling her daughter again. Mrs. Eaton left another message on Nancy's answering machine and then carried on with her day. But when she hadn't heard back from Tiger by later that afternoon, she called the real estate office where she worked. No, she wasn't there, said the receptionist. Nancy hadn't shown up for work, and no one had heard from her all day. After leaving several more frantic messages, Mrs. Eaton finally decided to drive over to her daughter's home on Farnham Avenue in the Young and St. Clair area of Toronto. It was 7.30 on a bitterly cold, snowy night. Using the spare key she had, Mrs. Eaton entered Nancy's apartment. It was in total darkness. "'Tiger?' she called out, but got no response." It was eerily quiet. Making her way through the apartment, she could barely see, but noticed overturned furniture in the living room. She moved towards the bedroom, again calling out for her daughter. The bedroom door was ajar, and she noticed a dark stain on the carpet, and there was something on top of the bed. Then, suddenly, She stumbled over something on the floor. She fell, and her hand touched the dark stain on the carpet. It was wet. Struggling to see, Mrs. Eaton saw all of the bedding on the floor next to the bed. She lifted the blankets, and there she was. Her daughter. Nude. Covered in blood. She was dead. Savagely murdered. And her mother knew right away who had done it. I'm Catherine Fogarty. And in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a tragic murder that shook the country and pitted two of Canada's most prominent families against one another in the pursuit of justice. She was beautiful, successful, and generous to a fault. Her killer was aimless and deeply troubled. Yet, they were the closest of friends. When he was upset, she listened. When he had nowhere to go, she offered him a place to stay. But then, he decided she had to die. Was he a cold-blooded killer... Or was something else responsible for his actions on that winter night? Was he bad? Or simply mad? A critical distinction when it would come to determining his guilt. This is Fatal Friendship. The murder of Nancy Eaton. Discovered. Nancy Alice Edward Eaton was born on May 28, 1961, to Nancy Lee Snubby Gossage Eaton and Edward Eaton. Her birth made all the Toronto newspapers, as she was the newest member of one of Canada's oldest family dynasties. Nancy was the great-great-granddaughter of Timothy Eaton, founder of Canada's largest department store chain. Shortly after her birth, her parents discovered that she had a severe hearing impairment with only 2% of hearing in one ear and 1% in the other. Her family chose not to send her to a school for the hearing impaired, but she wore hearing aids and learned to lip read to get by. Nancy never excelled academically and ended up attending 18 different schools. Nicknamed Tiger by her father, Nancy had a difficult childhood, often teased by other children because of her disability and her weight. At age 11, she suffered an emotional breakdown that lasted three years. But with her mother's constant support, she overcame her difficulties and matured into a kind young woman who was always there to help her friends. She was a sucker for anyone who needed help, said a school friend years later. She was always running around doing something for somebody. At 17, she moved out to live on her own. But her overprotective mom was still just around the corner. And while Nancy rarely saw her father, she did enjoy spending time at the Eaton's family summer home in Muskoka, and it was there that she first met the grandson of the next-door neighbors. His name was Andrew. Andrew LeSean Hughes was born on July 14, 1967, in Montreal, Quebec. His parents, Sarah and Ernest, met while they were both attending McGill University. When 20-year-old Sarah became pregnant in 1966, they decided to get married. The young couple were looking forward to becoming first-time parents. But Andrew's birth was traumatic. He was what doctors call a blue baby. The umbilical cord Was wrapped around his neck, cutting off blood flow to his brain. Four agonizing minutes passed before he cried out. The neurological impact of those precious four minutes would be called into question many years later. By the time he was a toddler, Andrew was already a handful, throwing explosive temper tantrums. Later, When he started attending school, he regularly acted out and was diagnosed with reading and writing disorders. And while he was extremely bright, teachers believed he had an attention deficit disorder. By the age of eight, Andrew was seeing psychiatrists and psychologists on a regular basis. But no one could pinpoint a specific diagnosis for his actions and his behaviors. Therapy didn't seem to help, and by his early teenage years, his parents were at their wits' end. Andrew was running away from home, stealing, and becoming more aggressive, even chasing his mother with a knife. His progress at school continued to decline, and the expensive private schools he attended had little patience for his bullying behavior he was considered a threat to the other students and was eventually asked to leave. At 13, he stole his father's Volvo and drove to his grandmother's farmhouse in Pickering, Ontario. There, he smashed a window to get in and spent the night. He was quickly apprehended by the police and returned to his parents, who did not want any charges laid. More psychiatric evaluations revealed he was intelligent, but lacked self-confidence and self-assurance. Typical teenage angst. But with Andrew, there was something darker and highly volatile lurking underneath. At 15, Andrew swallowed three dozen Tylenol pills in a suicide attempt. But when his cry for help went unnoticed, he trashed the family home. Then he stole his dad's car again and headed back to his grandmother's farmhouse in Pickering. The next morning, he robbed the local general store owner at Knife Point for a carton of cigarettes and $35 in cash. This time, his parents couldn't stop the police from charging him. After a few nights in a youth detention center, Andrew was given one year probation and returned to his parents. But by this point, the family dynamic had completely deteriorated. Andrew's dad was drinking to cope, and his mother's nerves were shot. After another physical altercation, in which Andrew threw a screwdriver at his father, the Lishon Hughes had had enough. Out of desperation, Sarah asked her sister to take Andrew. Andrew had always gotten along well with his aunt Amy and Uncle Bill, and he seemed to settle in well with his younger cousins. He was just one of the kids. But the happy family atmosphere wouldn't last long. In December 1982, Andrew pointed a loaded gun at his aunt and threatened to shoot her if she didn't let him take his uncle's motorcycle. Amy would later describe how Andrew looked. It was like the devil staring at me, she said. Dr. Jekyll had turned into Mr. Hyde, and I was terrified. But Andrew didn't shoot and quickly broke down into tears, as was his familiar pattern he would explode in anger and then be instantly remorseful. Little comfort to his family, as Andrew's behavior was becoming increasingly erratic and violent, and they feared one day he just might go too far. Andrew LeSean Hughes and Nancy Eaton had known each other since childhood, But it wasn't until the summer of 1983 that their friendship blossomed in the Muskokas, a popular resort area 150 kilometers north of Toronto. Andrew was 16 and Nancy was 22. But despite their age difference, the two had a lot in common. Both were born into wealthy, well-established Canadian families. Old-school money that held a lot of power and prestige. Andrew's mother was a member of the moneyed Osler family, a family that boasted a long list of influential lawyers, bankers, and politicians in the country's history. And Nancy was an Eaton, a name every Canadian was familiar with. Andrew and Nancy spent the summer at their neighbouring family compounds on Lake Rosso, the summer playground of Toronto's elite. And while the famous Kennedy clan in America had Hyannisport on Cape Cod, the Eatons, who were considered Canadian royalty, had Rockledge, a stately home on 18 acres of pristine Muskoka shoreline. The Eatons' neighbours were the Oslers, their cottage, built in 1912, was named West Winds at Windermere. The Osler Cottage was a source of great joy for Andrew LeSean Hughes. The summers he spent in Muskoka with his grandfather, John G. Osler, who died in 1978, were an idyllic contrast to his turbulent city life. And now he had found another friend he could talk to. As an only child, the beautiful and cheerful Nancy was happy to take on the role of a big sister to Andrew. This is my little bro, Nancy would say. But Andrew's affections toward Nancy were more romantic in nature, something the troubled teenager kept well hidden. The odd pair spent a lazy summer lounging on the Eaton's sunny dock, talking for hours. Andrew had a difficult relationship with his parents, which Nancy could relate to. She was also no stranger to family conflict. Her father, Edward Eaton, was the only child of Alice Eaton, the granddaughter of Timothy. And while content with a large inheritance, He was a difficult man and took no interest in the family firm. He preferred living the life of an Eaton without the responsibilities and was said to have enjoyed a drink or two or three. His passions were managing his investments, skeet shooting and whiskey. His 1960 marriage to Nancy Snubby Gossage ended in divorce after 12 years, leaving five-year-old Nancy and her mother with the Eden name but none of its wealth. The elder Nancy spent years fighting Edward in court for support, and as a result, Nancy Jr. had a strained relationship with her distant father. Listening to Andrew's troubles made Nancy feel needed, and she liked to help others. One thing upsetting Andrew during that summer in Muskoka was all the testing his parents were putting him through. After threatening his aunt with a loaded gun, Andrew had been sent to the prestigious and expensive Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut. There, the doctor scanned his brain and discovered that he might have epilepsy. Could this explain his explosive violent outbursts? Did this relate to his traumatic birth? The psychiatrists still weren't sure, but they prescribed anti-convulsive drugs to control what they called Discontrol Syndrome, otherwise known as Intermittent Explosive Disorder, which is characterized by a pattern of abnormal, episodic, and frequently violent social behavior in the absence of significant provocation. His doctor also suggested that Andrew should remain in the treatment center away from his parents and added, I am most concerned about the possibility that his behavior might escalate in such a way that he will do serious harm to either himself or to others, end quote. Andrew's parents were not happy with the doctor's recommendations and decided against giving Andrew anticonvulsive drugs. Following his release from the Connecticut institution, Andrew was sent to more doctors for more tests. A neurologist at the Toronto General Hospital found no brain abnormalities And described him as, quote, a healthy young man in no acute distress, end quote. Another doctor at the Toronto Western Hospital described him as exceptionally polite and cooperative during an endless battery of tests that revealed no major disorder other than attention deficit disorder. Andrew was then sent to the C.M. Hinks Treatment Center in Toronto. After another round of tests, the doctors there challenged the U.S. diagnosis. They did not believe Andrew suffered from any brain abnormality. They felt Andrew suffered from a conduct disorder, meaning an antisocial behavioral disorder. But they did agree with the Connecticut specialists' recommendations that Andrew should be treated away from his parents. They believed Andrew's problems were deeply rooted in his relationship with his family and his environment. The Hinks Treatment Center recommended a residential treatment program for Andrew, along with family therapy. Andrew agreed to the treatment program. His parents did not. For years, they had sought a specific medical diagnosis to explain who and what their son was. But after countless doctors and thousands of dollars, they still had no concrete answers. And now, at 16, his parents were left with the reality that Andrew wasn't getting any better. In fact, he was getting much worse. Even Andrew couldn't explain a lot of what he felt or did. He had outbursts of anger that would transform him into a different person, someone much darker and out of control. He was a hostage to his own moods and felt desperately lonely. It seemed as though there was only one person in the world whom he could confide in. Sitting on that sun-drenched dock with Nancy Eaton, all his troubles would melt away. But sadly, So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Back in Toronto, after a worry-free summer, Andrew's friendship with Nancy became more of a dependence. Whenever he ran into trouble, which he often did, he would end up at Nancy's fourth-floor apartment, which was only a five-minute walk from his parents' house on Elkhorn Avenue. There they would talk for hours, and then he would fall asleep on her couch. But life in the city wasn't quite as idyllic as time at the summer cottage. Nancy had lots of girlfriends and no shortage of eligible bachelors hoping to date her. She was a beautiful young woman and friends had often suggested she pursue modeling. But at only five foot two, she knew that wasn't going to happen. So she pursued a career in real estate. Between work and an active social life, Nancy was a busy woman. But Andrew didn't like it when Nancy was unavailable to him. One night, A neighbor encountered Andrew kicking and punching at Nancy's door in a rage because she wasn't home. The next day, the neighbor told Nancy what she had witnessed. But Nancy brushed it off, saying that she knew Andrew could be violent at times, but he would never do anything to harm her. Nancy was always protective of her little bro, Andrew but there was only so much she could do for him as his violent and often unpredictable behavior continued to escalate. On June 15th, 1984, just one month shy of his 17th birthday, Andrew was remanded to the Ontario Mental Health Centre in Penetanguishing on a warrant for break and enter and destruction of property. Andrew's violent outbursts and destructive behavior had finally caught up with him and police arrested him for a string of offenses. He had stolen his father's car again, broke it into the family's Muskoka cottage, shot a neighbor's cottage full of bullet holes with a 22 caliber rifle and in one memorable incident he had stolen three motorboats in one day. Andrew had also stolen Nancy's car once, along with her passport and some money, but she had forgiven him. At the hospital in Penatanguishin, doctors reconfirmed his diagnosis of a conduct disorder, an antisocial behavioral disorder. A psychiatric report from that time suggested that Andrew's actions could be seen as a cry for help in which he was asking his mother and father to pay attention to him and to his emotional difficulties. Andrew began group therapy and was encouraged to talk about confronting problems head-on. And at first, the treatment seemed to be working. Andrew was calmer, made some new friends, and was getting along with his parents when they visited. Andrew finally seemed to be learning how to positively release his bottled up feelings that tended to create his problems. Andrew was discharged from penitentiating in September of 1984, two months after his 17th birthday. He had been found guilty of breaking and entering and was given three years probation and community service. He also had to report to a probation officer on a regular basis. During his hospitalization, his relationship with his parents had improved, but he and his doctors decided it was better for him to live independently. He moved into a rooming house in the annex area of the city, not far from his parents' Summerhill home. Andrew's new place was a dump, but it was a start. He enrolled in a steelworker's course and worked part-time. Life was tough, but he wanted to prove to his parents he could be responsible. That Christmas, Andrew spent the holidays with his parents at their farm east of the city, and everything seemed fine. After New Year's, Ernest and Sarah Leishan Hughes informed Andrew they were going to Mexico for two weeks. The family regularly vacationed in Mexico, since Ernest's parents had moved there. Andrew missed his grandparents and told a friend he was very hurt that his parents had not invited him on the trip. With his parents gone, the beginning of the new year was difficult for Andrew. Flat broke, he would crash with friends and borrow cash from whomever he could. Feeling like he was losing control again, Andrew called his uncle and told him he was scared and suicidal. His uncle Bill took him immediately to a psychiatrist at Toronto General, who diagnosed the situation as normal teenage hormonal changes. But Andrew still wanted help, so his uncle bought him a bus ticket to Penetanguishing and gave him pocket money. Back at the hospital in Penetanguishing, Andrew met with a staff psychologist and a psychiatrist he knew from his time there. He told them that he felt like he was going to explode. But after some group therapy, Andrew indicated he was seeing things more clearly and feeling better about himself. His doctors were concerned about his relapse, but suggested that he get some exercise, play hockey to work off the tension he was feeling. Three days later, Andrew was back at Nancy's apartment, and something far more sinister was about to relieve his pent up tension and anger. The night of Sunday, January 20th, 1985, was like many others. At around 9 p.m., Andrew knocked on Nancy's apartment door. It was cold and snowing heavily outside. Andrew needed a sympathetic ear and a warm place to sleep. Nancy's couch was his only refuge. Andrew was wearing his black clothes, the outfit he wore when he was upset. He had taken 50 milligrams of Valium earlier to try to calm down. When he arrived, Nancy was already in bed watching TV with her cat Tinkerbell nestled beside her. She had gone to bed early with a migraine, but Nancy could tell Andrew was upset, and she always made time for him. The two friends watched the end of the Super Bowl game, drank Diet Coke, and talked into the night about Andrew's many problems. He had no job, few friends, and his relationship with his parents had soured again. While they talked, Nancy answered the phone twice, and both times it was her mother. Nancy was very close to her mom, which made Andrew jealous. That night, Nancy told her mom about Andrew going back to penitenguishing to seek further psychiatric help. Congratulations, Mrs. Eaton told him over the phone. Hang in there, she said, trying to reassure the teenager that one day his troubles would pass. At around 1 a.m., Nancy took out her hearing aids and went to sleep in her bedroom. And Andrew took his usual spot on the yellow couch in the living room. It was the last night Andrew would be sleeping at Nancy's. Monday, January 21, 1985, would go down in the history books as one of the coldest days on record for the eastern United States and central Canada. It was the inauguration of President Ronald Reagan for his second term in office, and it was only the second inauguration in history to be moved indoors because of the bitter temperatures. Dubbed the freeze of the century, over 100 people died and millions of dollars worth of damage was reported from frozen water mains and electricity outages. In Toronto, people woke that winter morning to a stormy blizzard that would end up dropping over two feet of snow and immobilize the city. Schools were closed, travelers were stranded, and people were advised to stay home. Like everyone else that morning, Mrs. Nancy Eaton was concerned about the winter storm and wondered if her daughter was planning to head into her office. The roads looked really bad. The mother and daughter spoke every morning, but when Mrs. Eaton called that morning, there was no answer. When her phone rang a little later, She was sure that it was Nancy calling her back. But it was a man's voice on the line. Good morning. It's a beautiful day, he said. Mrs. Eaton didn't recognize the voice. It's a beautiful day, he repeated before hanging up. Mrs. Eaton left a voice message on her daughter's answering machine and got on with her day. Later, around 5 p.m., Mrs. Eaton still hadn't heard from Nancy all day. She called Nancy's office, but they also hadn't heard from her. This wasn't like Nancy, and call it Mother's Instinct, but Mrs. Eaton knew something just wasn't right. It was still snowing heavily outside, but the storm wasn't going to prevent Mrs. Eaton from driving over to her daughter's apartment. She threw on her fur coat and raced out the door. She pulled up to the address at number 4 Farnham Avenue and in her haste left her car in a snowbank on the wrong side of the road and left the lights on. The apartment was in complete darkness except for the red blinking light on the answering machine and a string of lights on the Christmas tree Nancy hadn't taken down yet. Calling out to her daughter, there was no answer. She moved through the apartment. Mrs. Eaton could see that the living room was a mess. It looked like it had been ransacked. She called out to her daughter again. Still no answer. Moving towards the bedroom, she could see a dark stain on the carpet and what looked like a tall potted plant on the bed. She entered the bedroom Trying to reach to turn on the bedside table lamp, she stumbled against something. Mrs. Eaton fell, and her hand touched the dark spot on the carpet. It was wet and sticky. It was blood. Looking at what she tripped over, she realized it was a leg protruding from a pile of bedding on the floor. She lifted the bedclothes and discovered her daughter's lifeless body she was nude smeared in blood with a torn nightgown pulled up around her neck she felt her leg it was cold oh tiger the stricken mother whispered she fumbled in the dark to the phone and dialed 911 please she gasped before losing her grip on the phone receiver and losing control of her bowels. When the police arrived at Farnham Avenue, they were met by a frantic woman in a fur coat outside the building. She was barefoot standing in the snow. My daughter's been murdered. She's dead, cried the woman. I know who did it. It was Andrew. On the next episode of Fatal Friendship: The Murder of Nancy Eaton. 17-year-old Andrew Leishon Hughes is charged with the murder of his friend Nancy Eaton. And as far as police investigators are concerned, it's an airtight case. Physical evidence and a taped confession have the troubled teenager going down for first-degree murder and a life sentence behind bars. But while there's no doubt about who killed Nancy, was what Andrew did on that winter night criminal? The cold-blooded murder of a beautiful woman will be examined against the inner workings of a deeply troubled mind. Is Andrew LeSean Hughes simply bad, or is he completely mad? Lawyers and doctors will fight it out, while two of the country's most respected families struggle to come to terms with their very public nightmare.
0: This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast,
1: written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign
0: up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app
1: and feel free to leave us a review.